Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we, we do want to know the Lord Jesus, and we, we pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would show him to us, that you would confirm in our hearts the greatness of his power and his worthiness of faith, that we would be moved, Father, in every situation to go to Him and to trust Him. We pray, Lord, that You would open the Scriptures to us, that we would have minds able to understand and hearts hearts willing to receive what we see and affections desiring to follow You all the more because of what we see in Your Word this morning. We ask for Your help in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. This morning we'll be looking at the, the entire second half of, of this chapter, beginning in verse 21. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We'll read that whole, that whole thing. As we, as we do this, let's keep in mind, once again, why, why we stand. We, we stand to, to honor the Lord for giving us His Word and, and to remember that we are reading not just any book, but we're reading the inspired Word of God. These words have come to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They are living and active. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him. And thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, 
your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. You may be seated. Trusting Christ is, is not a one-time event that we do at, at the beginning of our, of our life with Him. But rather, it is something that we, we continue to do all the time. And we've seen, as we, as we looked back at that passage in Mark chapter 4, with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, that even those who have followed Jesus in faith, they can even find at times in their discipleship that it is difficult to trust in Christ. Many of us maybe this morning are struggling to trust Him with temporal things. And that's why it's helpful to take time on occasion to revisit the nature of faith and the strength of its object. And this passage invites us to do that. Because here again, Mark is showing us that Christ is worthy of faith. And as He has been doing that, he, he has, He's done that through highlighting Jesus' power and compassion. And Mark has also been teaching us that faith is the lifestyle of a disciple of Christ. And he's been doing that by showing us profiles in belief and unbelief. And the the main emphasis of of this narrative is that well-placed faith is the God-appointed means for the appropriation of divine power. Well-placed faith is God's appointed means for the appropriation of divine power. And there is so much to glean from this text about faith and its object that I messaged the elders on Friday afternoon and, and said to them, I, ha- I need about an hour and 45 minutes to preach the sermon on Sunday. And they were kind enough to offer some alternatives one of which was to cut this sermon in half, and so that, that's what I've done. So you have in your bulletin or your electronic whatever, you have four points. We're actually only going to cover one of those, so I guess you're not necessarily getting a half sermon. Maybe you're getting a quarter sermon this morning. But we're going to, we're going to begin this morning by walking briefly through the passage to get a feel for the story itself. Then we'll turn around and come back and begin looking at this idea of well-placed faith, and the first of these four sub-themes that develop that idea of of well-placed faith and what is it. So 
there's this huge crowd, once again, as Jesus gets off the boat, and a man named Jairus comes to Jesus, and he's a ruler of the synagogue, which means that he's, he's a man of great prominence. And even though he's a man of great prominence, he falls down at Jesus' feet because he's in such dire need. And he begins to beg Jesus for help because his daughter is at the point of death, and he believes that if Jesus will only lay his hands on this girl, she'll be fine. She'll recover. And, of course, typical Jesus, he goes with the man. He's going to follow him to where he lives, and he's going to do just that. He's going to lay his hands on the girl. Now, this huge crowd that is around Jesus, they're going to tag along. And verse 24 says that they thronged about him. Now, I don't know if I've ever used the verb, th- verb throng in casual conversation. So I don't know, know how many of us are familiar with what exactly that means. But this word means that they were pressing in on him as he walked. And I, I think about Mac, Michael Jackson back in the day. Some, some of you who are old enough, you, you remember footage of him walking from a car to a venue or wherever. And it was as if he had thousands of people attached to his body as he walked. It's like a horde of people moving in unison. That, that's what is being depicted here. The crowd thronging around Jesus means they're on him as as he's walking. Now, on the way, in that crowd, attached to Jesus, is this woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, that would be significant for any woman in any culture, but it's even more significant for this woman because she is a first century Jewish woman And Leviticus 15.25 tells us that a woman with a condition like that would be considered ritually unclean perpetually. And so whereas Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, he's a man of prominence in the synagogue, this woman, she can't even enter the temple. She can't go to the synagogue. She's ritually unclean. And so they come from the polar opposite extremes of the social spectrum. And Mark heaps up phrases in verses 25 and 26 to detail her misery. She has not been helped by physicians, but she has suffered much under physicians. She spent everything that she has to try to find some kind of cure. And those cures have not helped her at all, but they've only made things worse. And so now, as she's in this throng around Jesus, she's not only not well, and she's not only not not clean, but... She is destitute. She has nothing. So she and Jairus have in common, even though they're very different, they have in common that they are in great need. They also have in common that they come to Jesus because she's heard about Jesus. And so she fights her way through this crowd to touch his garment. because She says to herself in verse 28, if I touch even his garment, I'll be made well. And immediately she's, she's made well. Now, Jesus perceives that power has gone out from him. He didn't intend to heal anybody. And yet, touching her, touching him has had the effect that power has gone out from him and healed her, and they both know instantly that something's happened. So he's looking around at the crowd saying, who touched me? And, and of course, the disciples in verse 31, they're like, well, you see the crowd around you, Right? How, how, how can you say, who touched me? Everybody's touching him. They're all pressing in on him. 
The thing to, to understand, though, is that all of those people are not siphoning off power from Jesus. There is something different about her touching him as opposed to everyone else touching him. So he, he's looking around for who did it. And the woman comes and she falls down in godly fear and trembling, tells him everything, likely is telling him her, her past and, and why she did what he did. And so he says to her in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus, he's not angry like somebody came and took something from him against his will, but rather he blessed her. Your faith has made you well. And when he said that, he clarified for us the difference between her her touch and everybody else's touch. Hers was a touch of faith, and that is why power flowed from Christ and healed her. Now, that extraordinary appropriation of divine power through well-placed faith informs the rest of this story with Jairus and, and his daughter. Because immediately, while Jesus is still talking to the woman, somebody comes from Jairus' house and says to him, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And, and the obvious implication is that well, J- Jesus is, is pretty special, but it's too late now even for Jesus. Even Jesus can't do anything. Now, having seen what we've just seen in the text with this woman, with 12 years of hemorrhage. How do you think that we are intended to regard the news that Jairus has just received? We're intended to think, it's not too late for Jesus. He just healed the lady without even trying. So, in verse 36, Jesus says to to Jairus, do not fear, but only believe. Now, remember that, that Jairus was a witness to everything that we've just witnessed through the Scriptures because he's, he is with Jesus, or rather, Jesus is going with him. So everything that happened with, with the woman, Jairus, he's just seen it with his own eyes. And so when Jesus says, only believe, that's not an empty platitude, but rather that comes from Jesus in the context of this very recent miraculous healing of the woman. And so they continue on and they come to the house where there's this loud commotion, people weeping and wailing. And, and when in verse 39, Jesus questions all of these people making this racket, saying, why are you making a commotion and weeping and wailing? The, the girl is not dead, but only sleeping. They laugh at him. Now, laughter may not be the, the best way to translate this word. It, it, could, it could also be translated ridicule. But, but if they did laugh, if they were laughing at him, it may have been because they were paid mourners. There, there, were, there was such a thing as professional mourners back then. People would pay folks to come and make this kind of, of loud commotion, ostentatious, in a sense, display of mourning after the death of, of a loved one. So their connection to this family may have been more financial than emotional. But the reason that they would laugh or ridicule Jesus at, because of what he said is that the girl is literally dead. 60%. Of, of people who survived childhood died by their mid-teens in this culture. I'm going to say that again. 60% of those who survived childbirth, I'm sorry, did I say childhood? Childbirth, survived childbirth, died by their mid-teens in this culture. So they're laughing as if to say, uh, we've seen a dead body before. 
we're pros, we know what this looks like, that's a dead body. So she's, she's dead. What Jesus means when he says that she's asleep is that she is only temporarily dead. The New Testament uses sleep as a metaphor for those who have passed and are awaiting resurrection. And that's exactly the case right here. So, so he, he goes in with the mother and the father and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And look at verse 41. Again, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. So we have these two people, Jairus and the woman, both in dire need, both coming to Jesus in faith, and both receiving an unbelievable miracle. What is Mark's point? What does he want to convey to us? Now, Certainly, there's this ongoing focus on the power and compassion of Christ because Mark wants to convey to us that Jesus is worthy of faith. And so now, as, as we've been following since about the middle of chapter 4, we now know that Jesus is powerful over nature. He calmed the storm. He is powerful over evil. He defeated that legion of demons. He, we see here in this text, He is powerful over disease, heals it without even trying, and He is powerful over death, speaks words, and a little girl comes back to life. He is worthy of faith. Now, it seems, though, that the emphasis in this text is on faith because there are two crucial things that Jesus says here, one to the woman and one to Jairus. He said more literally to her, your faith has saved you. And to Jairus, he said, do not fear, only believe. So the things that Jesus is saying in this text seem to be putting the emphasis of the text on faith. So we need to ask ourselves, what then are we being taught about faith? I've already given you the main idea of of the passage, which is that well-placed faith is God's appointed means for the appropriation of divine power. And again, there are four sub-themes that contribute to that idea. This morning, we're just going to develop the first of those Lord willing, we'll look at the next three next week. But the first of those sub-themes is this. Well-placed faith has Christ as its object. Well-placed faith has Christ as its object. Now, those of you who, who may feel a bit cheated that you only have one, one blank to fill in this morning, don't panic. I will give you six things to write down here momentarily. But they won't be blanks. Now, have you ever heard have you ever heard people outside the church say say something like just have faith or someone who gives no no evidence of Christian belief say something like I'm in a really difficult spot right now but I have faith what what does that kind of thing move us to to want to ask faith in what or faith in whom? 
Because faith is, is trust, and the, the word itself requires an object. That is, faith must be placed in someone or something. And, and I would suggest that people using the word faith as an abstract entity with no object in mind, they're using that word inappropriately. And what they, what they actually are meaning, what they should say is something like, I'm being optimistic, or I'm thinking positive thoughts. Faith has to have an object, and, and we'll talk more about this next week, but a reason that faith must have an object is because faith needs to have something to act on. Faith acts. You know, every time you cross a bridge, you are acting on faith. There's this chasm that you, that you need to get across. You don't have the capacity to cross it yourself. You are placing faith in the bridge that it's going to hold your weight as you cross it, and you're acting as you, cross, as you cross the bridge. Faith has to be placed in something. It has to have an object. Positive thoughts can't convey you across a chasm. Faith has to be placed in an object. Now, was Jairus' faith then the kind of faith that people in our culture talk about? This, this general positive thinking or an abstract entity with no object. Well, let's look again a little more closely at at verse 22 and into verse 23. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Everything that that, that Jairus does speaks not only of faith, but also reveals the object of that faith, which is clearly Jesus. So this is not just faith as an abstract entity, but rather it's it's faith that is well-placed. And we see the same thing as we go down to verse 27 and look at the woman. She had heard the the, the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. Everything she does indicates faith and specifically the object of that faith, which is Jesus. So when Jesus says to to her in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well, assumed is your faith in me has made you well. Now, they both, Jairus and the woman, they both concluded that Jesus is powerful to save. And so they placed their faith in Him. Now, what is it that would, that would lead them to conclude this about Jesus? That He was powerful to save. Well, with the woman, Mark tells us very explicitly what it is. He, he, he tells us something that we can only assume about Jairus. L- look again at the beginning of verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She, she, she had only heard these things. She hadn't seen anything yet. And she concluded that Jesus is powerful to save. She'd heard reports about Jesus. Now, what reports must she have heard? Likely, she's, she's heard some of the things that we have heard from Mark already in just these first few chapters. Perhaps she heard about him teaching with, with, with unparalleled, 
unprecedented authority in the synagogue in, in Capernaum. Or maybe she heard about Jesus cleansing the leper with a touch, which would have been especially interesting to her given that her problem here is ritual uncleanness. Maybe she heard about all the controversies with the Jewish leaders that revealed significant truths about Him, including that He is the one who forgives sins, and He's the physician of the soul, and he is, He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Perhaps she was told about His preaching of the kingdom, which, which very explicitly says that one must repent and believe the good news. You need to leave everything behind and follow this Jesus. She might even have heard about the calming of the sea and Jesus' defeat of the legion of demons in chapter 4. How would she have heard about that? Well, chapter 4 tells us that when Jesus crossed the sea that night, there were other boats with Him. So the other, other people saw this stuff. So she could have heard of, of all of that stuff. But what she almost certainly heard over and over is that nobody goes to Jesus with a need and leaves with that need unmet, no matter what that need is. You think about the hope that wells up in her. She hears that. Because what, what, what does she feel all the time, every day? She, she is need. In fact, the way that Mark describes her condition earlier in the passage, he, he, he doesn't literally say she had a discharge, Mark phrases it in a very unique way. He says, she was being with a discharge for 12 years. And what he's indicating is that this condition had become who she was. So think about what's happening in her heart as she hears these reports about Jesus and then sees, there he is. She concluded, Jesus is powerful to save me. And she placed her faith in Him. Now, as as we think about ourselves as those who, many of us, perhaps most of us, we have placed our faith in Christ, and now our, our ongoing struggle at times is to walk in faith, to continue to trust in Jesus, be helpful for us to ask ourselves, what reports have we heard? What, what reason do we have to, to continue to make Christ the object of our faith? Well, we have heard not only what, what this woman heard, but the Scriptures have revealed many other things to us. And I want to give you, I want to give you six reasons why we should conclude that Christ is powerful to save and therefore continue to make Him the ob- ongoing object of our faith. could give you many reasons. I'm only going to give you six. First of all, the Scriptures have told us repeatedly that Jesus is the Creator of all things. He's the Creator of all things. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, they all reveal that God the Son was the active agent in creation. So God the Father created the world through the Son. So this Jesus, about whom we've heard and in whom we've trusted, He has creative power. 
The Scriptures secondly tell us that He's the sustainer of all things. So He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. Colossians 1 again and Hebrews 1 again tell us that so powerful is the Son of God that He not only spoke the world into existence, but also by His powerful Word, He maintains the world in existence. All things hold together in Him. Were the Son to remove His conscious, sustaining power from creation, all things, including you and me, would cease to exist instantly. It's incredibly powerful. Is God the Son? Now, God, His purpose in creating all things in the beginning was to share Himself, to reveal the fullness of who He is to creation and to have that creation reflect His glory back to Him. And man was given the great gift of being created in God's very image as the pinnacle of God's creation, to share in fellowship with God and to live in loving and humble submission to Him. But under the influence of of the evil one, the serpent, man rejected that plan, rebelled against God. And, And when man sinned, Everything went haywire, especially every facet of man's being. So physical sickness entered the world, much like this sickness that we find in the woman here in in Mark chapter 5. All life ends in physical death, much like Jairus' daughter here in chapter 5. Worse, spiritual death became the default condition of man, meaning that he's, he's unable to, to want God, unable to please God. His sin has made a chasm between him and his Creator, and that separation would be felt with every breath of this life and would culminate in eternity under the wrath of God in the next life. So God the Son created everything good, and at the height of, of that good creation was this wonderful thing of, of perfect fellowship between God and man. What God the Son created good, man destroyed. But God the Father determined that that would be restored, that it would be made new, that all things would be reconciled to Him. Now, whom would God the Father send to do that? To recreate, to restore, to reconcile. Well, who else but God the Son? That leads, led, leads to a third reason to conclude that Christ is powerful to save and therefore He should be our ongoing object of faith. That is, that, that Christ is the reconciler of all things. He's the creator of all things, sustainer of all things, the reconciler of all things. Colossians 1 again, verses 19 and 20. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him, through Christ, to reconcile to Himself, to the Father, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. In Revelation 21.5, talking about Jesus, says about Him that He makes all things new. So everything that the fall marred, Jesus recreates and reconciles to the Father. So Jesus That's part of what what this new kingdom is that Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is a new kingdom. Jesus is bringing a better Eden where man will enjoy eternally restored fellowship with God. And because that is God's plan from eternity past, we begin getting glimpses of hope as early as Genesis 3.15. 
that through Jesus, everything is going to be reconciled to the Father. Through this one seed, through Jesus, the serpent's head is going to be crushed. In Genesis chapter 12, through Jesus, all nations are going to be reconciled to God. And, and that leads us to a fourth reason that we should conclude that Jesus is powerful to save and He alone should be our object of faith. And that is that He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises. We have, we have promises being stacked on top of one another in the Scriptures in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, and on into Exodus and then 1 Samuel 7, on and on and on and on and all of those promises Paul writes about them in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, all those promises find their yes in Jesus. And it's not simply that Jesus is the delivery man, that, that Jesus is the one who gives us good things from God, but rather that Jesus is the gift. Jesus is what God has promised. And that's why in John chapter 5, Jesus said to the Jews, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me. Jesus continues with that kind of talk even after His resurrection where at the end of Luke chapter chapter 24 after His resurrection on that road to Emmaus with those two disciples, we're told that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things pertaining to Himself. All salvation history, all God's promises find their fulfillment find their culmination in God the Son. He is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the reconciler of all things, the fulfillment of all things. And fifth, He is the righteousness of God. We should conclude that Christ is powerful to save because He is the righteousness of God. Now, now how would that make Him powerful to save? Well, remember that our sin... Just this enormous problem because it separated us from God. God is so holy, he cannot, he cannot abide impurity in any form or any measure. And if we would be reconciled to God, we must be righteous as He is righteous. We must have a perfect record of obedience, which none of us have. Now, we've, we've already talked about how God put forth Jesus as the reconciler of all things. If we're going to be reconciled to God, Jesus is going to have to do something about that record of righteousness that we don't have. Now, how's He going to do that? Well, Hebrews 4.15 says of Jesus that He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's astounding. Think about how many times you've been tempted in the last week. And perhaps by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you resisted. I'm going to guess that sometime in the past week, you, you, you didn't resist. Jesus resisted every time. Ne ne never even sinned in thought or inclination. 1 Peter 2, 2, 2.22 says, He committed no sin. Therefore, Hebrews 7.26 concludes that Jesus was holy, innocent, and unstained. And that means that Jesus earned the perfect record of righteousness that we need in order to be with God. Now, we might think, well, that's wonderful for Jesus. How does that help us? So He can be with the Father. We still have this, this awful record, no righteousness. 
how does the righteousness of Christ benefit us? Here it is. Jesus became our substitute in life. His righteous life is credited to us by faith. Philippians 3.9 indicates that we're reconciled to God not by having a righteousness of our own that comes by obeying the law, but rather we have a righteousness through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And, and Paul writes in Galatians 3.27 that as many of you as were baptized into Christ, as many of you have, have trusted Christ unto union with Him, you have put on Christ. So, so we wear Jesus Himself. We wear His righteousness. Now, when Paul wrote that in Galatians 3.27, he had to have in mind Isaiah 61.10, which, which reads this way, He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Christ is the righteousness of God covering the sinner. Christ alone had the power to earn a perfect record of righteousness. And so when, when, I, when I trust in Jesus, I'm reconciled to God, not on the basis of any, any obedience on my part, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And I'm not just trusting Jesus to do something for me, but I'm trusting Jesus to be something for me. I'm trusting Him to be my righteousness before the Father. And the Scriptures testify everywhere that Christ can be trusted to be my righteousness before the Father. He is trustworthy, powerful to save. A sixth reason to believe that Christ alone is powerful to save and therefore should be our only object of faith is that He is the propitiation for our sin. He's the propitiation for our sin. See, this thing that Jesus did in earning a perfect record of righteousness and granting it to be accounted to us by faith, that really only took care of half of our problem. Because we not only needed a perfect record of righteousness, we also needed the removal of a dismal record of unrighteousness. God is just. Every sin must be punished. And we've all got a laundry list, an unquantifiable list of of sins. Worse than that, our very heart is eaten up with the condition of sin that must be dealt with. If we would ever be reconciled, Sin must be punished, and Jesus is not a half-savior. So, so he, he, is, he is our substitute in life. That is, that is he, he, he gives us His righteousness and its reward, but He's also our substitute in death. He takes our sin and its penalty. 1 John 3, 5 says, about Jesus, that you know He appeared in order to take away sins. Now, how does Jesus take away sins? 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, it says that for our sake, He, the Father, made Him, the Son, to be sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Likewise, 1 Peter 2.24 says that He Himself, Jesus, for our sins 
in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So, in the same way that His righteousness is credited to our account by faith, so also our sin and guilt was credited to His account. Our sin became His, and, and, and this is key, our sin became His in such a way that it was ours no more. Wiped clean from our record. And, and that is why Jesus says of Himself in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. A ransom frees someone. They're no longer bound. So when Jesus took those sins from us, they're not ours anymore, but rather we're free from that sin and we're free from its death. He took the sin. He took its penalty. And He did it not just for one sinner, but He did it for the whole church universal. Now, when Paul calls Jesus the propitiation for our sin in Romans 3 and, and, and 1 John 2, we need to understand what that means. Jesus was not just a sacrifice for our sins. As Pastor John read in, in Hebrews this morning, he's, he's also not just one of many sacrifices with, with, with many other sacrifices to come afterwards, but, but rather He is the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. And that satisfaction of the wrath of God is an absolute miracle. You know why that is? Why is it miraculous that God's wrath was satisfied? Do you, do you know why hell is forever? Why when, when you pay for a sin, it's forever, but Christ pays for it and, and, and it's gone? Because our finite sins are infinitely offensive to an infinitely holy God, and His wrath is infinite. So finite persons cannot satisfy infinite wrath. Never. And, and so, brothers and sisters, you, you, I, we could burn in hell for a million, billion years and never be one second closer to ever hearing God say, it is finished, it's paid, because it would never be paid. It would never be paid. It would never be over. And consider then the mighty power and purity of Christ bearing all the sin, all the guilt, all the wrath of many sinners. So powerful, so pure is He that He satisfied the wrath of God, not over many years, not over eternity, but He satisfied the wrath of the Father in an afternoon. That's why He said on the cross, it is finished. And three days later, the Father gave His amen to that statement by raising Jesus from the dead. And, and all of that means that there is there's no sin left for us. Christ took it all. There's no death left for us. Christ took it all. It was all transferred to Him by faith, our sins are forgiven and we have life in Christ. He alone is powerful to save. Now, look again at what Jesus says to Jairus in verse 36. Do not fear, only believe. Unto what kind of faith was Jesus exhorting him? Was it an objectless faith? Positive thoughts? No. No. R remember, 
Jairus had heard all about Jesus, and he was a witness to everything that happened with that woman. He knows that Jesus is powerful to save. That, that, that comment from Jesus or that exhortation from Jesus, only believe, that came with a context. And so when Jesus says, only believe, Jairus understood what he meant. He meant, only believe in me. And there, there are likely a number of us this morning who need to hear that. Do not fear. Only believe in me. We have perhaps received bad news. We are going through a difficult season. Maybe we have a broken relationship and we've done everything that we can to reconcile it, but the other party will not will not meet us at reconciliation. Maybe we have prayed for a good thing for months, years, and we get no sense that, that, that it's going to be answered in the affirmative. We're tempted to fear. We're tempted to remove our eyes from the object. But have, have we not, like Jairus, a context to these words, do not fear, only believe? Don't we have a context as well? Have we not seen with our own eyes and through the Scriptures that there is one who is powerful to save? The interesting thing about this text is about Jairus and the woman. They use the Greek word for, for being saved when they ask for healing. The word is sozo. Now, in, in our text, it's translated made well. If, if you lay your hands on my daughter, she'll be made well. If I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. And that's an appropriate way to translate this word. But it is the typical word that the New Testament uses when it talks about Jesus saving us. And I believe that the, New, the, the, the Holy Spirit inspired that word for this text to draw our attention to the broader work of Christ in salvation and all of life. He is powerful to save from sin and death, He's power to save, save us from disease. He is powerful to save us from broken relationships. He's powerful to save us from whatever comes against us between this day and His return. Jesus is powerful to save in the totality of everything that that word means. Jairus and this woman, they, they had faith. And Jesus commended that faith. The reason that faith was effective is because it was placed in the right object. Some in this room, perhaps, are still dead in their sins. They have never trusted in Christ to, to save them from the wrath to come. And to you, I would say, to you, this text would say, the Holy Spirit would say, you must repent and believe the good news that you've heard today. That good news is that Jesus alone is powerful to save. He alone is worthy of your faith. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. Others of us followed Christ long ago in repentance and faith, and, and we need to hear that He is powerful to save in these lesser things of daily life. If He could be trusted with the eternal... Can he, not only, can he not also be trusted with the temporal? 
You have heard reports about him. You have experienced him. Do not fear. Only believe in him. After I pray, we're going to share a a few brief moments of of silence. And during that time, let, let us consider before the Lord prayerfully how he would have each of us to respond to these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its pertinence and its timeliness. We thank you above all for the object of our faith, our great, powerful, and compassionate Lord Jesus Christ. We confess to you, Lord, that we at times are failing to remember that this object of our faith is powerful to save, to keep our eyes on Him, and to trust in Him. We pray for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that this text would be on our minds and our hearts, in particular this idea that well-placed faith has Christ as its object. We pray that, that our hearts and minds would be stirred by all of the reasons why Christ is worthy of our faith, and that we would be struck, Father, by the tragic irony of trusting Him with our sins, but not with our troubles in daily life. For those here, Father, who may not know the Lord Jesus, who are still struggling to follow Him, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray that You would grant them the great gift of desperation, deep abiding conviction, hopelessness in themselves, and awareness of the condemnation of their sins, and eyes opened to the glorious truth that Christ alone is powerful to save. We pray, Lord, that you would move them today to repent and trust in him, that they would be given life in him that they would follow Him today. We ask these things in His name. Amen.